Father of all compassion and mercy, we thank you for every token of your love in our lives. We pray now that as we come to look at this subject and look at your word and seek to understand more fully how it is that we are to walk as Christians in a suffering world, that your spirit may be enlightening every one of us, helping us think as we think and meditate and respond. Lord Jesus, be in this room and bless us with your love, we pray in, in your name. Amen. Amen. Now this is a huge subject, as you realise, and in spite of what David said, we're going to do it in two sections, really four sections actually, two before the break, two after, and then time for questions. Um, in order, and, and you'll see why uh, there's a progression about what we're doing, which is different from the book. It's, uh, it's called The One Big Question. I spent a couple of years on it after I retired. I was so determined that I would spend time on this subject that had been niggling all through my life, although I preached and spoken on it. I read 27 books, did all my work on it, and got enormous help from all sorts of people, scientists and other people, just at the right moment. It was amazing, really. So the book deals with it very much more thoroughly than I can do with, in the time we've got this evening. Um, but um, I'll do my best. And, and I will tackle it differently from the way in which the book does it. The book does it in trying to tackle the, the questions that are thrown at us. Why is there suffering if there's a God of love? Why doesn't God stop all suffering, etc.? The first half is trying to deal with all those questions. Not just to give um, Christians answers, but to give you ammunition for how you answer other people who will throw these things at you as they do. You know, why does God allow this to happen in Syria, etc.? People do it all the time at us. And how do we respond? Um, it's often an opportunity for the gospel if we can turn it. Then the second half is really handling suffering as a Christian. And both parts, they, they're very different. I wanted the second part first, but the publishers wanted the other way around. Either way, both parts are important if you take the book. Now let me uh, get on to the subject itself. If you've got a Bible there, and to warn you that eventually, but not at the beginning, we're going to come to Romans 8, uh, which is going to be the very centre of our thinking. One of the things is this. Many Christians today have a doctrine of healing. It's often a very unbiased doctrine of healing, quite frankly, and it's caused a lot of pain. If you tell people that if they've got enough faith, they're going to be healed, and they're not healed, and then tell them afterwards it's because they didn't have enough faith, you're doing more damage than you could possibly imagine to the souls of those people. And any of us in the ministry have spent ages trying to sort that one out. People who lose faith because they prayed and their loved one wasn't delivered, etc. But that isn't how the Bible looks at it, nor how the Bible handles it. Um, so, in many ways, um, we have to, to make sure that we have a doctrine of suffering alongside a doctrine of healing. And that's what we're tackling tonight, a doctrine of suffering. Now, suffering means what? Everybody suffers. Everybody here has suffered. Everybody in the world suffers. And suffering, if we only concentrate on the fact that we have an illness, and that's what this is all about, and forget that suffering means war, pain, poverty, natural disasters, homelessness, illness, refugees, disease, disablement, cruelty, accidents, early death, bereavement, etc. And what's going on in Syria? It does look a bit selfish that we're only really interested in our suffering 
rather than the sufferings of the world. But the sufferings of the world are in themselves something that challenges uh, all of us, and I'll come back to it a little later on. So I do uh, pray for healing, and I have seen people healed, but I don't accept a full doctrine of healing that says if you've got enough faith, you're going to be healed. That, as I say, causes so much damage. The difficulty with, um, with this is that there's no halfway point. Suffering either sends you into the arms of God or away from God forever. It's as dramatic as that, if you think about it. And very often, once a person has taken the line that um, uh, they prayed to God and he didn't answer, therefore they didn't believe in God, they put on earphones, basically, for the rest of their lives. I was on a station platform, uh, the old underground station at King's Cross, on one occasion, and there was a it was quite a wide platform, and there was a young lady there with her earphones on, jigging. And, uh, as people do, and she was jigging. But her mother uh, said something to her, who was standing with her, and, but she didn't hear it, she went on jigging. And then she said, shouted again at her, she still went on jigging. Uh, and eventually, not only did her mother go towards her, but most of the people on the platform went towards <laughs> her as well, trying to get this girl to see that someone was trying to talk to her. But basically, that's what happens with an enormous number of people. They put earphones on right at the beginning when they have this uh, belief. For instance, Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, at the age of 13, or younger perhaps, asked his Sunday school teacher, is God aware of the suffering in the world? The teacher did not respond, and in 30 seconds, he put the earphones on for the rest of his life. It's as simple as that. And people do that. All sorts of people do it. It's, it's almost tragic, really, when you realise that they don't, they, they, they've accepted a view of God. So what I want you to see this is, first of all, I want you to see four different stages. The first stage is the kindergarten view of God. And believe me, the kindergarten view of God is in the minds of an enormous number of intellectual people, not just ordinary people as it were. A kindergarten view of God is if there's a God, he's there to deliver what I want. It goes with the heathen idols. You make the idol, you pray to the idol for rain, it doesn't come, so you sling the idol out. And from the beginning, um, we sow it in Sunday school, we sow it in, in ordinary schools. We say, for instance, now children, it's our sports day on Friday, let's pray to God for fine weather. You've sown it. God is there to deliver what we want. That's what you have a God for. And if he doesn't deliver what I want, why should I keep him or bother to know anything about him? That's where an awful lot of people are, as you know, in Wanish and all through, uh, through the world. It's a little bit like the genie of the lamp. God is there for me. When I pray, I'm rubbing my lamp, and God is supposed to come up before me and say, Yes, Master, what do you want me to do? We say, well, I want you um, to heal me from cancer. I want you to uh, give me sunshine on holiday, etc., uh, etc. Et we ask God, but the Bible's the other way round. It, it's saying prayer is coming to bring things to God with a willingness to do what he wants. He is the master, not us. And we'll get into that later on. Dame Mary Warnock is a most brilliant person, as you know, she wrote a book called Dishonest to God. But um, 
and she's a brilliant theologian, but Bishop Nazar Ali says, she throws away the notion of a creator God because of a somewhat childlike objection of a Ruth Rendell. That's quite a put-down. But that's the point. This incredibly intelligent person has still, in a sense, basically not got rid of a kindergarten view of God who should deliver what we want. And while you go on with that, you're never going to get anywhere. It's an advance on, God bless mummy and daddy, and look after me, and help me get through my exams. And, and basically, we, we quite often get prayer to that point and not much further in our lives. And so, what's God for? Now, let's look at it in different ways. The grandfather God. Why is there suffering if there is a God of love? Well, say, this is me at the centre. God is there for my purpose. It's amazing what people can do. In one of the churches I was in, in uh, Manchester, I suppose, yes, in Manchester, uh, this guy, he was an insufferable guy. I'm sure you don't have anybody like it in Wanish, but uh, <laughs> he was in an organisation where they're supposed to do good to other people, though they were very proud of it. He said to me, oh, now, Rector, he said, uh, I was on holiday last week and we had sunshine all the time. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? The sun will shine on the righteous. <laughs> Fortunately, if you know your Bible, this is the sun will shine on the evil and the rain will be on the righteous. Because after all, if you're in a barren country, it's rain you want, not sunshine. (laughs) Unless you're there on holiday. It's the nearest I've got to kicking someone in the shins. (laughs) But this is the idea of sort of God doing what we want. Prayer is asking. We don't, uh, we dispense with God if he doesn't do what we want. Huckleberry Finn, you may remember, he was told that if you pray to God, he would supply what you want. And so he prayed for fish hooks. Do you remember that? And God didn't supply his fish hooks, so he gave up believing in God for the rest of his life. That was the idea. And it can be, as I say, in actually, in just a minute, that you can dispense with God. And once you put the earphones on, my goodness me, it's difficult to get them off. You can shout at people with the gospel. You can crowd round them shouting at the gospel. But until they get those earphones dealt with, they won't move. In my diocese of Chester, we had the David Lewis Centre, which was for severe epileptic people, from children up to quite old adults, all the way through. There were brilliant businessmen and others who were there helpless with epilepsy. Every year I confirmed a number of the youngsters. It was very moving. They fell on me. Um, but they, they worked, the people who worked with them, to, for them to love Jesus, they, they got to that. That's all that mattered. And uh, I'm going to cry my eyes out while, it's, while you're confirming people at the same time. But the staff there asked me to go and speak to them about suffering. So I did. And at the end of it, three of them sought Christ as their saviour. I did not preach any evangelism at all. I only talked about suffering. But they were sufficiently involved in it to hear me and to take the earphones off. And once they'd taken the earphones off, then they were open to God uh, to seek him for who he really is. It was very moving, but it proved the point that was thundering in my soul that until you deal with the block, then you're wasting your time shouting the gospel. Are you with me? Sure you are. It's quite early anyhow. So, <laughs> so the grandfather, God, is the one who should say, I want you all to have a happy day. Pat you on the head, give you sweets, 
And at the end of the day, as long as you say, I've had a happy day, he's done his job. That's what grandfathers are for, apparently. But there we are. This is the idea of God. Now, people say, well, isn't this what a God of love should do? You talk about a God of love. If you're a God of love, why don't you stop all these sufferings and all the rest of it? Now, it's quite a quick and easy thing to say until you try and think out what you're actually saying. Let's first make it clear, there's no such thing as love in Islam. You earn love, it is not given to you unconditionally. There's no love, as we understand it, in Hinduism or any other religion. The only place that it says God is love is Christianity. So if you make a statement, God is love, where did you get it from? You only got it from Christianity. So you go back to the person and say, that's, that's where it comes from, so now you need to understand what it means in the Bible, what God is love is in the Bible. And supremely, that presses you to the cross and the, and the giving of love and the self-sacrifice of Jesus and all that he's done for us. This is the meaning of love. C.S. Lewis, who you remember was an atheist for much of his life and then, of course, became a wonderful witness for Christ in all his great books. He said, when I ceased to be an atheist and became a Christian, I looked back and thought, how did I not see this as an atheist? How did I not ask myself, if this world doesn't have a God, and it has all this suffering, which it has, how would any human being invent the idea of a God of love? The only reason we believe God is love is because he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ and, and in the whole of the, of the, of the Bible. And then you ask, what does that love mean? And you come to see, oh, I mean, there's so much more we're going to get to before we get to, through, but, but it's basically on the cross. John Stott said he couldn't be a Christian if he wasn't for the cross. It is a good comment. There's the ruling God. Why doesn't he stop all suffering if he's all-powerful? Why doesn't God stop all wars and crimes and evils and Auschwitz? And why is there injustice if there is a God of justice? John Humphreys, who we all know from the Today programme, calls this the killer question. Michael Burke, who lives just up the road in Guildford, uh, you may remember made his name particularly over the Ethiopian famine, moons ago, but that's when he made his name. But because of the Ethiopian famine and what he, what he saw there, he gave up his belief in God. When I came to write the book, I wrote to Michael uh, Burke and said, I'm going to quote you, um, may I come and see you? Uh, could we have talk? Could we meet for coffee in Guildford? He bluntly said no. He refused to meet me. I'm not surprised. <laughs> he wouldn't meet me. But he wrote me a more vitriolic letter. And if you read the book, I quote Michael Burke, and then I also quote him later, but not with his name on, because I took it from the letter. But you'll recognise that it's the same vitriol, even worse. Um, it's absolutely viciously vitriolic against any idea of God. And he you think, gosh, you know, who's going to blow those earphones off him? This is the ruling God who should stop everything. But we come back to say, but just a minute, what are you talking about? Well, you say, it's easy to say, why doesn't God stop? Just a minute, how are you going to do it? Now, what's going to happen, for instance, in Syria now, if God is going to stop Syria? What's he going to do? He's going to purge everyone, every human being there of sin? Because sin is what makes you attack people. What did he step in and kill one side or the other? What does he do with the rest? What world will we be living in? Should he have killed Hitler at birth? 
Sir Chairman Mao had been obliterated before he got to the point of believing he was almost God and chucking the Ten Commandments, causing 55 million people to be starved to death in three years um, because of his policy that they had to give all their product up for sale so that he could uh, raise money to get nuclear war. And you say to yourself, what, what should God have done? What are you actually asking for? You come down to the human, the human scene. What happens? Here's a guy who's about to rape somebody. What's God to do? Is he going to make him impotent at that moment? Here's someone who's about to stab you. Is the knife going to turn to putty? Here's a child who reaches up to bring down the boiling water off the stove. What does God do, or is supposed to do? Make the water go cold? You see what you're asking? You're asking God to intervene millions of times a day in our normal life. We wouldn't know where we were. It would be a most incredible and chaotic sort of existence. And most of us wouldn't like God to intervene, quite honestly. If we got up in the morning and felt we couldn't decide what we were going to do today, um, we wouldn't like it very much because we have free will. And this is the whole battle, that because we have free will... Free will has led us to sin, and sin leads to trouble and suffering and all the rest of it. Most of the suffering in the world, not all of it, but most of it is caused by man. It's easy to make a statement, but you need to challenge it back. The only way in which you can stop all these things happening would be for us to be automated, programmed. Because it could get to that, the way things are going on in this world. So now there's the schoolmaster God. This is another difficult one. You must hear it very often. Why has this happened to me? And the one you must have heard most, what have I done to deserve this? It makes me scream and run up the wall quietly. As if God was there, say, you naughty girl, excuse me, just a minute, can I just take your hand? You've been naughty. <laughs> so you're going to have a car accident because that's what I think should happen. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But you see what the statement is. What have I done to deserve this? As if God is doling out these things, because, you, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's not biblical, but it's deep in people, even in Christians, and people will say it. And it's, it's tragic, really. Sheila Hancock, you all know Sheila Hancock? I tried to see a divine plan in my mother's suffering, but it was hard to equate the indignities, hear it, inflicted, inflicted on this good woman. Incontinence pads and violent vomiting with a merciful God. Who said it was inflicted? You did, Sheila Hancock. Not the Bible. So you've got to challenge these things in your own thinking and in the thinking of other people. And there's the control God. Why doesn't God um, prevent all natural disasters? Why doesn't he stop all illnesses and diseases? Now, we're going to deal with this a bit more later on. It's interesting, in the recent uh, troubles in Italy, remember the earthquakes in Italy and all the trouble with that, and most of us saw what they were saying on the news, that there had been cheap building and there was going to be an inquiry about people who had not built it against earthquakes. Uh, the Bishop of Rieti, or wherever it is, said this, Earthquakes don't kill. What kills the most is the work of man. And really and honestly, that's one of the ways in which you look at it. You look at something like Haiti, not this time, but the previous time, when the movement of the tectonic plates meant that 326,000 people died. 
Now, Haiti was created by the movement of tectonic plates. It came out of the sea as a result of the movement of tectonic plates. Everybody knows that there'll be another movement of the tectonic plates because that's the way the world is made. Those of you who are geologists know, but in the book we've done it all and given the illustrations of it. It was all around the Pacific and all the rest of it. It's a terrific amount of it, uh, including in this country. But the movement of the tectonic plates, we're told by all sorts of people, of course, not, not, not least Brian Cox, in spite of his atheism, that without the movement of these plates, the world will come to an end because it's the way it releases life from underneath and all the rest of it. It's, very, it's a bit complicated. But the fact is, is so you build, you build your house on a place where the tectonic plates are going to move, and then you say, oh, why has God allowed this to happen? Whereas up in Chile, they had a similar disaster, um, a similar earthquake, same power, but only, I think, a dozen people were, were hurt because they built every building to withstand earthquakes. So where's the sin? The sin is in Haiti over those who built cheaply on top of the tectonic plates. Why blame God? So it's easy to do this and... Um, the same with uh, illness, for instance. I mean, it's very easy to, to feel, why does God allow us to have all these diseases, etc., etc., etc. But we're not stainless steel. Our bodies change, any doctors here, is it every, every three or four years that we're changing all the time? Our bodies are developing. Um, we're a living organism. And living organisms have problems. They have rogue genes and all the rest of it. And I'm going to come back to that later on. As far as this is concerned, we need to understand we are a living organism. And if we're really asking that every time, every believer here, all you have to do is pray to God when you have whatever the illness is that hits you and it will be taken away from you. What would be the result? So all the Christians in the world will be free of illness. Not quite sure how they're going to die. Uh, we haven't worked that one out yet. Uh, no one's thought about that. But then everybody would become a Christian in order to escape illness. Mind you, the NHS would benefit enormously. <laughs> but basically, that's what we're, what we're saying. And we feel, you know, I'm a child of God. Why has this happened to me? Or why should it go on happening to me? Whereas the fact is, we are like any other human being. We've got a living organism that's going to throw up problems. So these are some of the things um, we skipped over a bit that we deal with much more fully in the first half of the book. So when people say to me, I've lost my faith in God, I say, wonderful. And they say, pardon? <laughs> and I say, it's wonderful. Well, what do you mean? I just said I've lost my faith in God. I said, you know, if I had a faith in the God that you believe in, I would lose it too. Another way of answering people, and that's one way I've used very successfully, another way, which someone else suggested to me in one of these sessions, they said, well, I say to people, how interesting. Do tell me about your God, because I don't know this God that you believe in. Which is a pretty good answer too. Does it work? Yes, it does. Dare you to try it next time someone throws it at you. And go on from there. I was at a livery dinner, and you get sat on the top table as a bishop, and you've got somebody left and right of you for the next three hours, of course, with no one opposite you. Well, they... A lot can happen in those three hours, actually. But on one occasion, not so long ago, the, the master's wife attacked me on suffering within the first 30 seconds. I just finished the book. 
actually writing the book. So it was absolutely into my mind, you know, I was full of it. And she threw me most of the questions that are actually in the book, extraordinary, I mean, she couldn't have known. Um, and I dealt with them one by one, one by one, as best I could. And then at the end she said, I surrender. <laughs> so I said, yeah, well, fair enough, but, but surrendering is not the, not the game. But now you need to start back from the beginning and ask yourself, what is God really like? And what has he done for us in Jesus Christ? And what can that mean for me? Kindergarten view of God. I guarantee there are quite a lot of people in Wanish who've got an awful lot of kindergarten view of God because it's true everywhere. Of course, you're all wonderful. You might just have a trace there. Next time you face an illness, you say, why has God done this to me? I hope you'll kick yourself in the shins. So that's, there's the junior level, is the next level. Now this goes a bit further. The junior level is not now just interested in what God can do for me, but now it's people who begin to build a relationship with God, which is true probably of everybody here, um, most Christians. You're beginning to, you're building a relationship with God, you've come to know God, perhaps you've come to know Christ as your saviour, uh, you're beginning to grow in the Christian faith, beginning to enjoy worship and being part of the church and so on. Um, but uh, the other bit still lingers, and so there's a bit of a battle going on at junior level uh, between um, uh, the way in which you think uh, in your mind and the experiences you're having. Edith Schaefer, uh, who was a, a great Christian many, many years ago, um, she said, we too easily turn to what we can get out of Christianity. It is devastatingly sad when born-again Christians retain a childish view of God. So the only way of overcoming that is to grow in the other direction and to see what you can do. But um, I noticed the other day a person called Dr. Berwick, I think the name was, a Methodist preacher. She was honest about the fact that um, her husband had Parkinson's and she'd faced an extreme illness. And she said, I'd already always preached, God is with me, God is with me, God is with me. But when these things hit her, they, they overwhelmed her. She said, I screamed at God and said, what are you trying to tell me? And it's a shame, really, but that's what she did. And she said, I lost my faith, I couldn't preach, I felt abandoned by the love of God. Now, that's the tragedy. Here's someone who had believed in God with them, but they'd not dealt with that view of God, that they, that they shouldn't suffer. And so, their whole ministry, her whole ministry, um, was wrecked by that, which is pretty dramatic, really. I was at a party once, um, and this young fellow, he was about 21 from overseas, he knew I was a Christian, uh, he said uh, to me, um, he said, it's awful, he said, I'm a Christian, he said, and I have an awful time in life, and everything's going wrong, and, uh, but my friends who don't believe in God, everything's going well for them, you know, they're, they're doing wonderfully, you know. So fortunately, I had a New Testament and Psalms in my back pocket, and I drew it out and opened it for him at Psalm 73, and said, read that. Well, Psalm 73, if you know, um, the first half of the psalm is entirely what he was saying. You know, everything's going wrong, um, you know, all the others are getting on, the evil people are all succeeding and I'm not, and everything's going wrong for me. Um, and then in the middle, it says, and then I went into the sanctuary. And when he comes out of the sanctuary, he says, he realises that he has more benefit by knowing God than any of the rest of them. And he says, uh, the psalmist says, 
Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward you will receive me into, into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing upon earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart may fail. Repeat, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is the way in which you begin to break through to get fundamentally um, this conviction that God is with me and I'm with God, whatever happens. In that way I can begin to face and deal with all these other questions. Now, this is why I now want you to look at Romans 8. I don't know if we're ever going to get there, but if you could open it to Romans 8, it would be helpful. And if you do that, then you'll look at verse 18 of chapter 8. And verse 18 of chapter 8 is the sort of middle of, of the chapter. It says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. That's the, that's the keystone of chapter 8, the middle bit. Now if you look at the first part of chapter 8 and just let your eye go over it, you'll see that what Paul is doing is building... What, what he's doing all the way is building the question of relationship. If you look at it, he's dealt with, of course, in the early chapters with sin and the cross and getting right with God and, the, and life in the Spirit now... And then in chapters, uh, in verses 5 and 9, it's the contrast between living according to the sinful nature and being in the light. Verse 6 is between death and life. Verse 7 is between hostility to God, I don't do God, and all the rest of it, and peace with God. Verse 14 is, we are now led by the Spirit as children of God. Verse 16 is not just in the mind, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And then, um, verse 17, strangely, he goes on to say, interestingly, we share in his sufferings. The second half is all about suffering. But what Paul has done is taken the whole first half of what we see as a chapter to build the fact that without a real relationship with God, you're never going to get this sorted out. And that relationship with God has to deepen, has to be a real relationship that through our days gets better and better and deeper and deeper. And shallow Christianity will not stand up to suffering. It can't. And it doesn't. Parable of the sower. Some in rocky places, not much soil. It, it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, they were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Jesus explains, what was sown on rocky places is the man who, has, who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since he has no root, he lasts only a short time when trouble or persecution comes. Because of the word, he quickly falls away. That's it, isn't it? Unless you get that relationship deeper, then when suffering comes, bang. So many people sail along very happily in the church and Christianity until suffering comes, and then, bang, they're not ready for it. Now what I want to say is that Basically, I, I long for Christians to deepen in the pillars that hold us. The pillars of faith, the pillars of love, and the pillars of hope. And the bigger, the bigger you get those, those pillars down into the ground of your soul, the more you're able, more than able then, to face up to the question of suffering. Because you know God, and you prove God, and you've seen God working in your life in so many different ways, as he does, of course, and even over, over illness and suffering, of course, he does as well. So it's, it's um, an important issue, really, um, that has to be dealt with. A man came to see, uh, 
sent me a long screed about heaven or something or other, and he asked me to comment on it, and I, it was not long ago, and I wrote back to him and, and said, you'd better come and see me. So I, I saw him for an hour, and I went through all his, dealt with all his strange theological whims, but about 55 minutes into it, I got to the core of it, that his mother was dying of cancer, had been dying of cancer, he prayed for God to heal, and he didn't. He claimed that whatsoever you pray and ask of God, he will give you, and he didn't, so he lost his faith. I thought, for all this time, I didn't see that coming, even then. But underneath, in spite of all this other stuff, it was that uh, that had actually rotted him. That he never dealt with it, and expected God to answer his prayer. Because someone had told him, that's what you have to do. So the three pillars of faith, a faith that will stand with God... Hudson Taylor, you may remember the great missionary, at the end of his life had something of of a breakdown when 70 of his missionaries were murdered in China. But he said this, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot even pray, but I can trust. And that's the faith that doesn't understand necessarily. After all, um, as you remember, um, elsewhere in the Bible it says that we only see now through a glass darkly. When I was a child, I thought as a child and acted as a child, but when I'm an adult... And often we have to see that we've got to grow in this great conviction. So the heroes of the faith are people who trusted God, Moses and all the rest of it. Um, And when you read the list of the heroes, like in Hebrews 11, um, and you say, marvellous were all that they did. But then in the end of the chapter comes this. Some faced jeers and floggings, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, sawn in two, put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. Yet they believed. That's when faith stands the test. I've come to know God, it's often in short ways, simple ways, we, we, we find and trust God and he, and he teaches us like a child very often, builds us up. Is that not your experience a bit, many of you? And you begin to trust him more because, because of the way in which he meets with you in simple things. Um, um, and this faith has to deepen and we need to pray about it. It's, it's so important that it gets deep into our very, very being. David Watson was a great evangelist, many of you remember him. But towards the end of his life, he he said that the attacks on his faith were like a ferocious enemy in suffering. Difficult to stand, but he stood, of course, um, because he was that sort of man. So suffering deepens our faith quite often. It's something which, as it tests us, it says proves our faith as being genuine like gold and all the rest of it. Um, there's so much more that I could say, but time is running on me. Um, so you need to get that foundation deeper and deeper. Then love is the next foundation you need to get down. C.S. Lewis said, suffering is only a problem if we attach a trivial meaning to love. Now, I mentioned that earlier about love. Emil Brunner, a great, evangel- a great uh, theologian, said the statement that God is love is the most daring statement that has been made in the English language. Because it isn't natural in a sinful world. You only know it if it is revealed. And so this is why you and I need to pray. Those of you who were at the prayer session remember I went into the prayers of Paul to deepen in love, to deepen in faith. Do you remember? Um, I hope you're all using those prayers. Uh, And if you are, then you're praying for yourself, which I long for every one of us to do. Uh, Like Ephesians 3 Uh, that you might be uh, rooted and grounded in love 
to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So you pray for this love. You pray for God to show him your love, to, to bathe you in his love, to touch you with his love, to thrill you with his love. Um, that's selfish? No, it's not. It's part of the way in which you can grow. And you pray it for other people. The more you know that love, the more you know someone deeply loves you, even if they hurt you, you still know they love you, as it were. Not that God hurts you, but um, that's not a very good illustration, but you know what I mean. So this love needs to deepen. We need to pray about it. We need to long for it. We need to read about it. One person I quote in the book, Francis Young, the mother of a handicapped child, said, God is the recess of love to absorb all our sufferings. The third pillar is hope. Hope is so important, as we know, in any sphere of life, but certainly as a Christian, and we have that hope so deeply founded on the facts of the resurrection uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the hope that he set before us. And uh, that's why in verse 18 here, it speaks of, of, of the fact that we look forward to something far more wonderful. And hope um, thrills here. It opens ourselves out. It deepens us in our convictions of all that we're doing. And so important, um, Edith Schaefer again, affliction with a, go- with a goal is very different from dogged suffering without hope. We had a neighbour when we were living in London, our first time when I retired, he was a, we did a lot with him and he was a nice fellow, he was a Roman Catholic but with all I could do I could not move him into a personal faith in Christ he would go to church but you know it was a failure really in sort of moving him then he had to go into hospital several times then he went into hospital and he was afraid he said well, the one thing I don't want Michael is to, is to be put in the geriatric ward I don't know what he was thinking about because the geriatric ward in, in um, St. Thomas's in London, which it was, was rather spacious and lovely. But, uh, he, uh, and then one day he was taken in ill and he was there for some time and I went to visit him. And, and I, when I was going out, the staff said, are you related? I said, no, but I'm his neighbour and the only person near him. And they said, we're going to move him tonight to the geriatric ward. And I said, well, I hope you're going to prepare him if you're going to do that. Oh, yes, they said. But then later in the evening, this phone rang and there was Peter crying his eyes out down the phone. They hadn't warned him. They dropped him on it and moved him. He lost all hope. He died in two weeks. And I felt awful because he didn't have a hope in Christ. So faith, hope and love need to be something deepened so that they become part of our very being. Don't be shallow Christians. You've got to do it and you have to do it through the word, through reading, through studying, through longing to know more of Christ, to know more of his word. That's halfway. Don't go home because the next two bits are very important. (laughs)